Lord, this text admonishes us towards godly behavior, knowing that there is nothing in this world and there is nothing that man may throw at us that can rightly be our concern. There is no need, there is no want, there is no peril, there is no crisis, there is no trouble that can befall us by devil, by world, or by man that you cannot overcome and that you cannot work together for good. You have already conquered over the greatest enemy there is, death, and have taken away, for for those who are in Christ Jesus, you have taken away its sting. In light of your utter faithfulness, in light of your grace, in light of your constant provision and your tender shepherdly oversight for your people. Help us to walk as we ought. Help us to walk as we ought, Lord. Amen. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. We are picking up where we left off, looking at the biblical role of the wife in chapter 5, verses 22 to 24. There, as I said last week, there is a lot of unnecessary confusion and error in culture regarding gender and marriage. And unfortunately, that confusion, that error has even seeped into the church, which really ought not to be the case because the Bible doesn't exactly hide this information. I mean, did, 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 did anyone last week go, wow, I've never heard this before? There, there's no code necessary. You don't have to learn Greek or Hebrew You don't have to use paradigms or or any kind of hermeneutical gymnastics to find out simply what the Bible says about matters such as gender, roles, and marriage. And it would be incredibly helpful for us to know, for those of us who who are in marriage, it'd be helpful for us to know what the Bible has to say about marriage and gender, and not only for us who are married, but for our children who we pray will one day be married. Uh, You know, it's said that uh, uh, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. How much better, how much wiser it is to train our children up in what God says about marriage rather than let them be influenced by the culture and to be married like the culture and then to reap the consequences of culture and then try to backpedal and fix the problems they're in. It's how much better it is for us to to do marriage the way God says to do marriage. So to that end, we're going to continue what we started last week, and I added a point, because I can do that. The biblical role of the wife is 
primarily concerned with submission to her husband. And we see in these verses, Paul describes this submission. Mandy, I'm so glad you came back. Jennifer told me it was a it was a allergic thing. You weren't upset, you weren't offended. I'm gra- I'm grateful. The submission that a wife is to have for her husband is an exclusive submission. First part of 22. The second part of 22 it is a structured submission. Verse 23 it is a designed submission, and then verse 24 it is a comprehensive submission. Let's read, read the text and we'll, we'll get into it. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now give me 40 seconds to just recap the first point. Namely, that the wife's submission is an exclusive submission. The wife is to submit herself to her own husband. And that word own uh, uh, is usually used to speak about things that are private property, things that are exclusively your own uh, to, to use or to own or to exercise. And, and I would hope that that. All husbands in this room are the private property of their wives and no one else. The wife submits to her own husband, not to other men in general. And this doesn't apply to unmarried women because unmarried women are not wives, nor do they have husbands. And a woman is not given this responsibility until she becomes the wife of her husband, not when she's engaged, not when she's a girlfriend, but when she's a wife. And secondly, Paul addresses this not to husbands, but to the wives. This is not something, this is not a prerogative for husbands to enforce or to require or to demand or even to try to cultivate it. This is something that the wife is to do herself. She is to submit her own person, her own heart to her own husband. It must come as an act of her own volition. And she must do it sincerely because of the recognition, because she understands this is what the Lord is is requiring of her. Not because she's being coerced, not because of compulsion or intimidation, whether on part of society or even her husband. But Aaron, there, there is a vast range of variability when, you, when you're talking about the quality of husbands out there. Some of them are knuckleheads. Some of them are louses. Some of them are irresponsible. Some are, dare I say, sinful. Some husbands don't deserve their wife's submission. And I know that. And I think Paul anticipated that very reasonable objection, which is why he explains that the wife's submission to her husband is a structured submission. Here's the second point. It is a structured submission. He says, concluding verse 22, wives be subject to 
to your own husbands because he deserves it? Because he's so worthy? Because he's so excellent? No. Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. It is a structured submission. In submitting to her husband's authority, the wife is simultaneously doing something else. She is simultaneously submitting to the Lord's authority. No husband has ever earned his authority. No husband has ever established himself as an authority. It is given to him, it is delegated to him by God. And that makes all the difference. The Lord Jesus told Pilate, you would have no authority unless it were given to you from above. Did Pilate acquire, earn, merit his own authority? No, it was given to him. Romans 13.1, every person is to be in subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. If anybody has an authority, it's because God gave it to him on loan. It's because God has delegated power and authority to him. And that means that, means that all authority originated not with any man, but with the God who delegates it. And that also means that God doesn't come along and he sees that somebody already, maybe a king, maybe a governor, or, or perhaps a husband, and he sees that he already has authority, and God says, well, you know what, I suppose I can make this work. I suppose I can, I can take these lemons and make lemonade, and I can use the authority he already has for my own ends. No, God gives him, establishes to him, if it's an authority, God establishes that authority, be it Pharaoh, be it the Philistines, be it King Saul, be it the Assyrians or Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians or Cyrus, the Persian or the Romans, which would include Pilate, which would include Nero or the Sanhedrin. Or Presidents Washington, Lincoln, Trump, and yes, Biden. Be it a, a good, godly, no, no, take that principle that God establishes all authorities and now apply it over to the husbands. If it is a good husband, if it is a godly husband, or even if it is a knucklehead husband, he, there is no authority, says the scripture, except from God and those which are established, including husbands, there are those which are established are established by God. And so to submit to any of these, to submit to all of these, to recognize their God-given place to govern and to lead, to respect and to defer to the leadership and authority that they have is ultimately this. It is ultimately to respect and to recognize and to defer and to submit to the authority and the leadership of the Lord who established all of them. Put it in simpler terms, the wife who submits to the lesser magistrate, her husband, 
demonstrates she is submitting to the greater magistrate, the Lord who put him there. The wife's submission is ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the words of 1 Peter 2.13, she submits to her husband for the Lord's sake. It is a structured submission. Her submission for her husband, whom she can see, is ultimately and really being done unto the Lord himself, whom she cannot see. And I understand this can be very discouraging for some. It can be greatly encouraging. On, on, on a level, on some level, this can be downright devastating. Because if you have a knucklehead for a husband, and I, I recognize there are a number of synonyms and alternate ways we could describe these, shall we say, less than Christ-like husbands, I'm just going to settle with knucklehead. It's safe that way. Your man may be a knucklehead of a husband. I mean, he, at best, he may be an imperfect manifestation of Christ, or he may be far less than that. He may be a real source of headache. His leadership may have serious flaws. His love for you, his tenderness, His care for you and your children may fizzle and flicker. And he can be the cause of pain and of much suffering. And he may genuinely be a burden to your heart and your soul and your life. And if all you see is his imperfections, I understand you can be greatly discouraged, ladies. you might easily become embittered as you are reminded day after day after day that he is anything but deserving of your submission and that he isn't worthy of it. And you might say to yourself, in this embitterment, you may say to yourself, why am I doing this? Your heart may be full of angst. You may, you may see that there is no end in sight. Why am I doing this? Why am I putting up with that man? That would be greatly discouraging if those things were all you saw. But this word, this this instruction, would be greatly encouraging and, might I add, liberating for you when you remind yourself that your responsibility to submit to your husband is not contingent upon his inherent worthiness or lack thereof. Ultimately, your responsibility to respect him and to recognize his place of leadership comes not from your husband, not from the man, but from the Lord himself. Your responsibility to respect your husband is given to you none other by the Lord himself, who I don't need to convince you is inherently worthy of being submitted to, who is immeasurably worthy of being obeyed and trusted. And so you don't do it for your man's sake. Regardless of the kind of man he is, you you submit 
to an imperfect and perhaps seriously flawed man for the sake of an utterly perfect and flawless Lord. That's why you do what you do. And this means that a wife who nonetheless respects a knuckle-headed husband and recognizes and respects his place of leadership, maybe she's pleasing him, maybe he's delighted, maybe he's oblivious. Like I said, there are some real knuckleheads. But ultimately, she is pleasing and respecting and obeying and serving the one whose opinion of her and whose care for her truly matters. Maybe your husband's leadership is questionable. Maybe he's foolish. Maybe he's lacking in a number of qualities. Maybe his use of money isn't wise. But to nevertheless show him respect and to defer to his leadership is to respect and to defer to the one who put him in your life and joined you to in marriage. Conversely, this also means that a Christian wife who disrespects and defies her husband is ultimately disrespecting and defying her Lord. That can be a tough one to swallow. Your husband's leadership may be foolish, flawed, impulsive, aggravating, sinful, And there are appropriate ways. We're not excusing any of that. There are appropriate and biblical ways to respond to those things. But with the exception of where and when he is leading you into sin, with the exception of where and when he is requiring his wife to sin, the biblical expectation, the Lord's expectation, is that the wife is to respect and submit herself to her husband's leadership. Third, we see that the wife's submission is a designed submission. And here Paul reveals the design behind the wife being placed in this position of, of submission or subordination to her husband. And it's no, it's not because God prefers men. It's not because God thinks they're better. The reason goes back to how God designed a man and a woman to come together and to function as one whole. Paul says in verse 23, opening line, for the husband is the head of the wife. And there can only be one head. So he had to pick one of them and he picked the man. And we talk about the head of a corporation or a division or a group. We're talking about the one who leads. If someone says, I'm going to head up this project, they are the one in charge. They're the one responsible for the growth, for the development, for the success of the project. They have the decision-making authority. They have the responsibility of leadership. That person, yes, may have others on his team who collaborate and who contribute, but those collaborations and contributions are made under the headship of that project leader. And in the marriage, in the family, in the home, the husband is the head. 
He is the leader. He is the one ultimately responsible for it. We could call it the family project because it has been assigned to him. He has not given this assignment or this designation because of the way he is. That, that is to say, it is not as if God came along and he assessed the man and he reviewed the man and said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to make him the leader and the head and I'm going to give him responsibility because of the way he is. No, he doesn't earn this position because of his inherent quality. And perhaps you hear me talking like this about the husband being the head and the one in charge and the one responsible. And you're saying in your heart, if you're if you're a wife, if you're a lady and you say, my husband isn't like that. Or if you are a husband and you you're saying in your heart, well, I don't act like that. You need to step it up. And I'm going to get to you next week. So be ready. But the man is not the leader because of anything he's done to earn it or merit it. He doesn't earn the position. He doesn't earn the leadership. And he didn't take it unfairly when nobody was looking. God gave it to him. God give, has given the husband the position of leadership in marriage because that's how God wants man to function as a husband in the marriage, as the head. In the same way God included the head in the construction of the body so that it might function as the head, so too did God include the husband in the design and in the construction of your marriage, of your family, of your home. And he included the wife. He designed the wife not to be this inferior appendage that dangles off the head as if it was a weird piece of decoration like we need to put something there i don't know just let's put a wife there no the wife was not an afterthought the wife was an intentional designed being as that which completes and complements her husband genesis 2 18 god calls the wife that he's about to make for for the man he calls her a suitable helper that has the idea of being a, a, a counterpart that is designed to complement and to complete something. In this case, the husband. And when no suitable, suitable, suitable helper was found among the animal kingdoms, you know what? That didn't surprise God because he knew how he made Adam. And he made Adam, he made the man knowing that he was going to complete the man with a certain kind of thing. And it wasn't going to be something in the animal kingdom. He designed the man, think about this, he designed man to be incomplete and inadequate without being joined to just the right kind of suitable helper for him. And then he designed the wife to be precisely that. God designed, you could put it this way, God designed the man for the woman and he designed the woman for the man. They are complementary counterparts and they are mutually suitable. Complementary counterparts and mutually suitable. Now, Aaron, 
are you really saying that wives are to submit to their husbands and to respect them as God-appointed leaders and heads in the family? I mean, do you understand how backwards that is? How, how outdated that is? Yeah, I do. And I realize how much this cuts against the grain of culture. And everything that you have heard on a podcast, read in a book, read in a magazine, read on a blog, or heard from social experts or thought leaders. But if there's any doubt that this is what Paul is saying, I want you to look at the illustration he provides. The husband is the head of the wife as what? As Christ is head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. Now let me ask you something. Does Christ have authority in his church? Yeah, we got one yes. Got a, a very cautious head nod to, okay, yes, Christ has authority in his church. Does he lead his church? Is he responsible for his church? Is the church expected to submit to him and recognize his role and position as leader over her. Yeah. In a similar manner, the husband has authority over the wife that is to be recognized and respected. And in the same way that God designed Christ to be Lord over his church, he designed the husband to be head and leader over the wife. And maybe as I'm saying this, you're thinking, Aaron, but, but, okay, and there are caveats to this, and they will be addressed in the next point. I want you to see in verse 24 that the wife's submission to her husband is a comprehensive submission. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands, and here, here's, here's what I want to draw your attention to, in everything. In everything. And what this means is that the biblical expectation for wives is that they don't pick and choose which areas where, where she will submit and which areas she will not. It also means that she must see to it that she's not making her her husband, whether directly or subversively, that she's not making her husband a vassal king or a puppet king. You know, someone who, who wears the crown, but really someone else pulls the strings. You know, he's a figurehead of authority, and he, it looks like he's leading, but it's really on her terms. He may be the boss, but he's the boss on a leash. He may be the head, but she's the neck that turns the head kind of thing. Brian, stop smiling. Getting yourself in trouble. He leads in the areas that she allows him to lead. And when it comes to areas that she's not ready or not willing to surrender to him, she closes him off, puts the caution tape around says off limits to you. And she remains her own and her own authority. Mark this to say, I choose where I will submit and where I won't is another way of saying I'm still in charge. 
And my husband only leads where, I, where and when I allow him to. Don't be that wife. Don't be the wife who says, my husband only has authority where I authorize him to be an authority. To say that, to, to have that attitude, that is an utter violation of the Lord's design. He has designed the husband to be head. He has appointed the husband in, uh, as head and for the wife to act as head in attitude, in her mind. It's a violation of that divine design. Rather, the wife is to have a comprehensive submission to her husband. And I, I chose this word rather than saying an absolute but rather comprehensive. There is a broadness to his leadership that covers every area of her life. And it's not limited to when the husband, to only when the husband is right or wise or prudent or otherwise being a knucklehead. You know, there's a verse that talks about how wives ought to conduct themselves even when their husbands are knuckleheads. Did you know that? 1 Peter 3.1, wives... Be submissive to your own husbands so that if any of them, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, you, you look it up in a modern day layman's lexicon, it'll say, see knucklehead. Be submissive to your own husbands so that if even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Peter, Pastor Peter, Apostle Peter calls wives to have a respectful, chaste submissiveness with husbands, knowing full well that some of them are disobedient to the word and abject knuckleheads. Some wives delight in pointing out their husbands' faults and errors, and they can be contentious. They can be nagging. And they draw attention to the fact that they were right and their husbands were wrong in some matter. And they delight in calling their husbands to account for their wrongs and they create conflict concerning his wrongs. Mark this. What does Peter say will fix them? What, what does Peter say will win them over? It is not a contentious arguing demeanor it's not a nagging correcting i'm right you're wrong and this is why kind of attitude that is not what will fix them verse one they are rather won over without a word without a word by the behavior of their wives as, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior don't underestimate the place and value of a respect, respecting, respectful submissiveness and a quiet demeanor and a shut mouth, not out of fear, but out of deference, out of humility, because that is what the Holy Spirit uses to convict knuckleheaded, disobedient men. Don't discount, discount the value 
of humility and patience. The gentle, forbearing, patient silence of a godly wife weighs so much more than the multitude of even the best arguments. And if the Holy Spirit is working on his heart, your chaste, your respectful patience, and your humility will smack him in the face. Now, I said there were some caveats that come with this comprehensive submissiveness, and here's one. Comprehensive submissiveness does not mean that the husband is a warden and the wife is a prisoner in her own home. Comprehensive submissiveness does not mean that the wife's voice is to be silent and her opinion is to, is to not be heard or that she is to be excluded from discussions in family life. Not saying that, not hinting or insinuating that in the slightest bit. The husband may have the responsibility of having the final say on things, but that doesn't mean he has the only say. He may have the last word. That doesn't mean he has the only word. And it doesn't mean that she is never given the time or place to voice her concerns or to give her input. You show me a man who never listens to what his wife has to say and who places no value in her thoughts, is unconcerned with her concerns, never wants her perspective. You show me a man who does that, I'll show you a fool. A fool. An abject fool. A smart husband listens to his wife. Guys, are you dialed in? A smart husband listens to his wife. And he values her contribution. And he encourages her to share her perspective. And he includes her in the decision-making process because more often than not, she will see things that you don't and she will pick up things that are completely off your radar. She's different than you. And that's a good thing. A smart husband listens to his wife and values her thoughts. And hopefully your husband, ladies, hopefully your husband does that. And hopefully he's not so self-willed and strong-willed and his ego is so massive that he ignores you in the decision-making process altogether and leads high-handedly. Hopefully he doesn't do that. But even if he does, and we're gonna, if he does, we're going to deal with that next week. But even if he does... See that your role, when the decision-making process is done, however it's done, and side note, how the decision-making process is being done now doesn't mean that it has to stay that way. But when the decision-making process is done, you follow your husband and you accept that with a spirit of humility and contentedness. That is the responsibility of the wife. Now there's another caveat. This analogy between Christ and the church with the husband and the wife, it's going to come up again when Paul addresses the husbands. And it's a great analogy, but but there are some 
ways in which this analogy falls short, or maybe it'd be better to say it only goes so far. There are some critical differences between any husband and the Lord himself. Maybe that's obvious. Maybe it's not. The Lord Jesus is perfect. He is altogether righteous. He is altogether good. He is altogether faithful. He is altogether good, loving, and holy. And He will never, never, ever, ever lead you into sin. Submission to Him will never require you to sin. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. That verse is not saying that God promises to deliver you from temptation. It says he promises a way out of the temptation without, uh, rather, he promises a way out of sinning in the temptation, which is why he includes that last phrase, so that you will be able to endure it. And what this means is that God never allows any of his people to be tempted to the point where you're backed into a corner and giving into sin is the only option left on the table. There is always a way to respond to any temptation in a sinless way. And Christ will never lead you into sinning. It will never, ever be his fault. And everything he does, everything he calls you to do is wise and profitable and good and purposeful. None of his promises fail. His character never fails. His integrity is never compromised. His intentions and his methods are always good, true, and right. And this cannot be said of husbands, of earthly husbands. There will be, well, all, all husbands in some manner, are unchristlike to some degree. Some are exceptionally. Am I am I too loud, Mandy? Okay, sorry. There are some husbands who are anything but Christ-like. There are some who domineer and who oppress and abuse their wives, and they even they may even lead their wives into sin. And the fear of God should be in you. If you're such a man, because God will hold you accountable. Just as God will hold wives accountable for how they submitted to you, you will be held accountable for how you led them. And it is the foolish husband who takes that warning lightly. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all the synoptic gospels, Matthew 18.6, Mark 9.42, Luke 17.2. They all have this warning that only a fool will take lightly. It is better to have a millstone hung around your neck and, and you be cast into the sea than to cause even a, a little one to stumble. And so I say with all seriousness, God will, seal, will deal with you very seriously if you are a husband who mistreats your wife. All spheres of authority established by God are not authorized to require their subordinates 
those in submission to them to sin. And in cases where an authority is calling a subordinate to sin, you can find one example in Hebrews 1. Pharaoh had given a dictate that all the Hebrew boys were to be thrown into the river and the Hebrew midwives, we could say, respectfully disobeyed. And they were applauded for it by God. The apostles in Acts 5, the Sanhedrin said, don't preach in the name of Jesus. The apostles said, it is better to obey God rather than men. And they were applauded by God. It is better and it is right and it is good to obey God rather than men. And that principle is likewise applied in the authority that a husband has over his wife and the submission she has for him. If a wife's, should a, let me put it another way, should a husband require his wife to walk in sin, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to, to violate her conscience or to violate scripture, she has every right, every right to respectfully tell him no. And the wife who is told she can't come to church because he doesn't want, either he doesn't want to go or he doesn't want her to go because she wants to be obedient to Hebrews 10.25, not to forsake the assembling together, she must respectfully tell her husband, I can't abide by that. There is a higher magistrate which I must obey. Furthermore, a wife's responsibility to submit to her husband does not require her to receive or endure physical abuse or allow her children to be subject to physical abuse. The headship of the husband is not a license for him to be a brute. It is not a license for him to mistreat those who have been entrusted to his leadership. And should he act wickedly in this manner, his actions need to be reported not only to the church elders, but the police. And mark this. Do not, do not mishear me on this. The wife has every right to be the one doing, um, putting, bringing light to the matter. She is not betraying her husband. She has every right. I've said before that I hate cliques. And perhaps the most offensive, vile, and wicked clique that I can think of is that of the old boys club. Where despicable things are done and then just brushed under the carpet. And those who are in every position to bring attention to the authorities and to hold people accountable, they look the other way. That is a despicable thing. And the leadership of this church can be fully expected to take appropriate and swift action if it comes to our attention that such a thing is being committed. Now, we're all feeling kind of meh after those caveats which I think was important to go through. But let me, let me conclude with some practical, active, um, positive application. Okay, let me, let me try to bring us back up. Don't think of submission merely as being passive or merely as shutting your mouth once a decision has been made. I want to I look at this 
what, what the words that Peter used, 1 Peter 3. I want to look at this, at this chaste and respectable behavior, and I want to show you some ways how um, borrowing on the analogy of, of Christ and the church and the wife and her husband, we can look at just in chapter 5 of Ephesians. And we can look at some of the things, some of the ways in which the church is rightly to respond to her head, Christ. And I don't think it's an abuse to, to uh, say the same thing can be done as a wife to her husband. One, chapter five, verse two, love your husband, ladies. Love your husband. The church is supposed to walk in love not only towards one another, but towards Christ. And as the church is to walk in love towards Christ, so to you as a wife, walk in love towards your husband. Love your husband. Sacrifice for him. Support him. Give yourself selflessly towards him and be endeared towards him. Love your husband, ladies. Chapter 5, verse 10. Please him. Please him. The church is to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Learn what is pleasing to your husband. Discover what pleases him, not because you have to, but because you want to, because you get to. Discover what makes him happy. Discover what he responds to, what, what puts a smile on his face and a skip in his step, and do, do those things for him. Show him spontaneous gestures of affection and love and even pleasure. Please, please him. 517, understand him. Ladies, learn your man. Listen to him. Discover how he thinks. Discover how he ticks. Appreciate his strengths and be patient and prayerful, and forbearing, and tender with his weaknesses. Discover how God built him, and discover and support how God is growing him. Understand your husband. And then lastly, 519, praise him. Praise him. And granted, some of you ladies don't have to look too hard or too far. Some of your husbands are, it it is easy to find things to be thankful, for you to be thankful for. There are things that I am thankful for many of your husbands. Some of you may have to get an excavator out and dig deep. But nevertheless, find things to thank your husband for. Find things to congratulate him on. Affirm him. Ladies, nothing debilitates a man more than the suspicion or the confirmation that his wife thinks so little of him. And if you doubt me, ask him. He desperately craves your respect. And nothing so utterly hamstrings and devastates him than a wife who publicly contradicts or criticizes or demeans her husband. Conversely, nothing will cause him to soar than words of affirmation, 
and words of confidence and appreciation from his wife. Speak well of him before others. And mark this, speak well of him before your children. Do you want your children to be confident in their dad? Yes or no? Then demonstrate you have confidence in your husband and foster confidence in them, in him. Now, as I said last week, there's so much confusion about gender roles and marriage and it ought not to be in the church. I think the biblical expectation for wives and for husbands is clear. And in light of these things, the, the, the wife who does these things will not only do her part for a good marriage, more importantly, critically more importantly, you will be pleasing the one who will record you accordingly. And he sees every single thing you do. And he will reward you for patient, humble, loving, gentle submission to your husband. And ladies, if you've fallen and failed in these areas, today is the day to shake off the dust of worldliness and selfish pride and worldly ambition that I think are the root causes amongst other things as to why there's so much confusion and strife in marriage. And if, if this isn't where you are today, if this isn't where you have been, let me encourage you that the blood of Christ is more than adequate to cover and forgive any and all sins on your part. And if this is a struggle for you, ladies, the Lord himself will help you. He will help you walk this manner of walk that he gives to Christian wives. So lean on him. And men, go easy on your wives because your turn is next week. And you would want them to be gentle with you, right? So be gentle with them. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a gracious God who forgives our sins. Your word is a is it, a, it is a mirror. It shows us what we ought to be. It shows us that we are not what we ought to be. And yet we are reminded again and again that you are a God who forgives the sins of your people. Help us to walk as we ought. I pray for every single marriage in this building. I pray for wives that they would have the strength and the humility to do what is required of them. I pray for husbands that they would have the humility and the love to do what is required of them. We love you, Lord. Thank you for being so good to us. Amen.